Do you need a PhD? When I launched into the doctoral adventure, I wanted to teach at the same level that the professors I worked with did. So for me, the answer was yes. In today's episode, my guest, Sherry Whedon, shares her journey and her reflections on the reality of the PhD career today and talks about how she found a path to doing research and applying her expertise in child psychology at the community level in the non-academic space. My plan, as I've said, was to become a professor and continue the basic research I was doing. But I think it's really smart to open up some doors so that you have other options if that first plan doesn't work out. I think we get really focused in grad school on the one thing that we're doing and how we're going to keep doing that. And really, grad school is the great time to like look at other opportunities, get other experiences, and see, see if there are other things that you could also really, really love. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Welcome to this week's episode of Papa PhD. This week with me, I have Sherry Whedon. Sherry has an extensive background in investigating the development of children's concepts of emotions. In 2013, she transitioned from, base, from basic research in developmental psychology to more applied intervention research in education settings with a focus on increasing children's social-emotional skills to support their academic outcomes. In 2015, Sherry joined a team at the Stanford University Graduate School of Education and contributed to a text messaging-based parenting interve intervention designed to help parents support their preschoolers' school readiness in literacy, math, and social-emotional skills. In 2018, she joined Committee for Children as the Director of Research to help children thrive through their emotional learning interventions. Welcome to Papa PhD, Sherry. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. It's, it's great to have you here. Uh, I really love uh, the, the, what you're working on today and, and the mission that you have with, uh, with uh, Committee for Children, uh, helping kids uh, develop you know, in, a, in, a, in the best way possible and help parents in their, in their, 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 well, in their children's development. I have two kids myself, and I know that at times it is challenging and, uh, and you know, ha having a, a voice that kind of brings maybe some science into and some you know, uh, evidence-based information into how you do things is always a, a good thing. <laughs> so welcome to the show. Sherry, uh, so the first thing I always ask of, of guests is to kind of tell the story of how they got to their, their research uh, subject and to the domain that they work in. So, yeah, maybe just tell us the story of, you know, how you got into, into that domain and worked yourself up to, to the PhD. Great. Um, so I actually started my bachelor's degree a little later than a lot of people, um, Initially, I had gone into art and graphic arts, and okay. that didn't pan out. So a few years after I finished that program, I took a single introductory class on psychology, and I was hooked. So hmm. from that, I moved into full-time undergraduate studies. Um, at first, I thought I was going to be a teacher, 
And then I thought, um, I was trying to figure things out and was kind of thinking maybe clinical psychology, but Mm. um, the people I knew who got into the clinical psychology program at the University of British Columbia had like GPAs of 4.2. So (laughs) while my GPA was pretty good, it wasn't going to be 4.2. So um, eventually I settled on developmental psychology because every psychology class I took, it was the developmental section that really grabbed me. So I was very lucky in my fourth year, I took a course on human emotion with Jim Russell. And it it was like the course that was designed for me. And he hmm. needed somebody to come in and help do some research that had been started with young children and how they understood emotion. So I find it very interesting to look back on all these transitions and just how it makes sense when you know the whole story. But it could have gone in a hundred different directions at any point <laughs> yeah. in time. So, um, so yeah. So I, then it came time to apply for grad school. I had decided in like my second year of my undergrad that I was going to do my PhD. Okay. Um, and so I applied to many different Canadian schools, and actually, it was Jim Russell at University University of British Columbia who I ended up staying with, mm-hmm. and we worked super well together. I was doing basic research, looking at how preschoolers understand emotion and how that changes with age. And I just really loved it. I thought that I was going to be in basic basic research in psychology for my career. I had every intention of becoming a professor. Um, And then, you know, things changed. (laughs) So um, just before I started my PhD program, so I'd finished my master's, Jim Russell took a position at Boston College. And so I made the decision to move with him and continue our work together. Um, And in Boston, I met my now husband, and he had a young daughter. So we Mm -hmm. couldn't leave Boston because her mom was there and they needed to be close together. Um, So I did a a long postdoc with my grad advisor. Um, It started because he became department chair. And he needed somebody to run the lab, which I was already doing. So mm-hmm. he negotiated a PhD for um, a postdoc for me. And mm-hmm. um, that worked out really well. I got to work with some really great grad students. I published a lot. Um, and then when, you know, 12 years went by, because <laughs> wow, okay. um, my stepdaughter Evie was um, in high school about to graduate. So I could finally apply much more broadly than I'd been able to up to that point. Um, and didn't get anything in the first couple of years of my efforts to get something. So I decided to do a, a like look for other opportunities besides a mm. professorship. So you, you were applying to, to, to one of those, uh, those, uh, uh, subventions or to, to start a lab. Was, was that the objective? Yeah, exactly. You, so okay, I wanted okay. to be a, a tenure track, uh, mm-hmm. professor, um, you know, and, so I could work with more grad students and of course. teach courses and stuff. Um, so when it was clear that I wasn't going to get a position um, that I wanted in time, I started looking at other opportunities. And I was really lucky to stumble on um, a position at Yale University at the mm-hmm. Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. Um, okay. So I worked with them for two years. And it was really great. It was my first foray into applied work. And prior to that, I literally could not think of an applied topic 
within children's mm-hmm. understanding of emotions. So you can see I had kind of a narrow view. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it was kind of a surprise to me to learn that I was an expert in social emotional learning, and <laughs> which is like a really hot topic right now, especially in education. And can you, and just, just for the sake of the, the listeners, if some, you know, someone who's doing basic research and wants to apply it, what, what's kind of the big difference between applied oh, yeah. and basic that, yeah. Yeah. So basic research is essentially where you, you find a question that's really interesting and you just want to know the answers so that you are increasing knowledge in the field. Applied research is where you take some of that basic research and you see how you can make it work to benefit a particular population. So at Yale, um, I was working with a group that was developing a social emotional learning program called Ruler. And so I got to, you know, bring my research knowledge into their program and help to kind of shape some parts of it. Um, I was working on a measure of children's understanding of emotion that looked at more than happy, sad, angry, and scared. So Mm. they had a whole vocabulary (laughs) of emotion words that they tried to help children learn through their curriculum. And so trying to try to find a way to find out when kids understand the difference between frustrated and annoyed. And so Mm -hmm. like much closer um, categories than most emotion research ever thinks to look at. So that was a lot of the work I did there. It was really great. I really enjoyed it. Um, but then funding ran out. And so I was mm-hmm. on the job market again. Um, again, looking for a professorship somewhere. And um, then, you know, I did some interviews. I got on campus for a couple, but it didn't pan out. So again, I was looking for other opportunities. Um, and this was when I started to think that maybe I wasn't going to get to be in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, even though that and it was a really hard dream to let go of, actually. Um, but in the end, I got a position at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. So I was like, phew, still in academia. Um, <laughs> the team that I worked with there was um, super smart, super agile, working on this texting intervention for parents to help them support their children's um, school readiness skills. Mm-hmm. So um, I got to jump in. I developed the whole branch that was for social emotional learning. We extended it from parents to um, informal caregivers. So like the aunts and grandmothers and other people who are um, looking after other people's children. So really with a direct effect on a community, on a particular community that that was, I guess, close by, I imagine. Yeah. So we were in um, near, well, we were in Stanford, California, the university Mm -hmm. and a town. Um, Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. uh, we were working initially with um, a group of community programs that um, was in San, in a very low-income area of San Jose, California. So it's okay. like a half hour away. And um, I, I was going to ask you something. Because you, for, you know, from, from what the, the story you, you're telling me, you wanted to be a professor. A lot of us do when we embark on a PhD. Um but I do feel that you navigated all, you know, this questioning, this this looking, this, this uh, trying, and I don't know, at the time, you know, emailing or going to interviews. It feels like you navigated a lot of, of that. And I'm not talking about your, your, your partner, but about the university. You navigated this on your own. There, there were this, that you didn't mention any 
you know, training towards uh, towards uh, looking at careers outside uh, academia or support? Can you do you confirm or how how did you you know get tools or and and uh, you know abilities to start looking into that and 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 doing interviews? Did you you know did you kind of have to teach yourself or or did you have some support from from your so program I, or from university i didn't have support from the universities i worked at um it's curious so if you're a postdoc at university they have a lot of resources available but if you're a researcher at a university you don't have access to those same opportunities i see um, the infrastructure just isn't there uh so Once I wrapped my mind around applying for non-academic positions, I started to look at what the what they were asking for with your application. And to my dismay, they wanted a resume, not a CV. And when mm -hmm. I looked into the difference between them, they are like two completely different documents. On our CVs, we list everything we've ever done since the beginning of time. <laughs> yeah. uh, a resume should be a page, and it should outline like your all your skills and your education. Um, but really, it should be one page. So I took my 16-page document and <laughs> just had to like brush most of it aside and just focus on the skills that I had developed by doing the work I'd done without mm -hmm. like listing everything out. Um, so that was a big hurdle. <laughs> Luckily, mm -hmm. at Yale, I had a couple friends um, who also were they knew they were at Yale for a short period of time and okay. weren't interested in doing. Um, going into academia. So I actually learned a lot from them um, around their thinking and their approaches. And um, and so that was super helpful. They, they were the ones who gave me feedback on my resume and things like that. Um, I did do a lot of reading, like just Google searches online to learn about the, the way interviews go when it's not an academic position. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there are just so many things. Like <laughs> you would never get these kinds of questions um in <laughs> academia but there are questions like what's your favorite color and what does that tell people about you and it's like oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, i am not i wouldn't know how yeah it's a real i don't know what to answer to that <laughs> oh, although in, on google they also have uh, good like templates for your answers so hmm. you, you can prep for those kinds of questions but they really do just come out of left field um hmm. so yeah so there was a lot of extra work i was doing just to try to figure out how to apply for non-academic positions. Um, so um, I was telling you about how we had um, extended our program from parents to also include informal exactly. caregivers. And we were actually explicitly targeting um, that group. And they're a really hard group to reach because they're not organized in any way. So mm -hmm. parents are super easy because you go to the preschools their kids are at or the schools their kids are at and you can access them that way. Um, informal caregivers are actually super isolated um, from other from each other, um, and they aren't do, there aren't like regular activities that they all participate in. So mm -hmm. our initial way to get into that that group was to partner with a family resource center in San Jose, California, and um, it was it was they were like super involved. They really helped us shape our approach. Um, To, they helped to recruit our first sample of 10 informal caregivers. They actually went door to door to, oh like, try, like, to like, <laughs> give the information to people. And I was like, wow, that's a big effort. But they were so excited to be able to do it. And so it was a really great partnership. And um, it was even hard for us to think about what 
this group of people knew and what they didn't know. We didn't even know why they looked after the children. Like, was it for money? Was it like to help family? And in the end, for our sample, it was almost all to help family. Okay. Um, and so they were actually more motivated to support kids' skills than we expected because they were mm. working with family members that they really cared about. Um, but they just didn't know what to do. So we would send them three texts a week that um, the first one was always about why the topic was important. So um, naming emotions, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. I feel like in middle class North American families, talking about your emotions isn't super uncommon. But for other cultures, you just don't talk about your emotions. And um, so that was a really like to explain why it was important to, to teach kids to talk about their emotions mm -hmm. was something that we did in the first text in less than 160 characters. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then in the second text, we gave them an activity to support that skill. So okay. um, when you're talking to, you know, the child you take care of, um, tell them about a time when you felt angry and what you did. And then ask them if they've ever been angry and what they did. I mean, these mm -hmm. are pretty simple, but for some of the people we were working with, they, it had never occurred to them that they could talk <laughs> to kids about emotions. Um, yeah, the, there's cultures where kids are supposed to, you know, shut up until uh, the grown-up tells them to talk, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it could be rough uh, in that. In that, that. And what's really, and I, I'm going to let you keep on going, but what's really I find interesting about what you're saying is often someone who's now in a, doing their PhD and or finishing their PhD and ha has kind of understood that they're not going to go or not, you know, that they're going to go somewhere else in academia. A lot of them can ask themselves, how, how am I going, how, how are my skills that I developed during my PhD are going to be useful outside academia mm -hmm. and in the community and in, in the real world, let's say. And you're really giving an example of, you know, taking all that knowledge that you had from being a very, you know, classic researcher into now having messages going into into people's cell phones, helping them in a real life situation of, you know, taking care of their cousin or their neighbor. It's, it's, I, I really, I, I want to note this for the listeners because one of the things that I want to say through the podcast is your skills can be used within academia, but also outside of academia. And, and there are, you know, many places where they'll be useful. Maybe not that the techniques that you learned, if you're a kind of a, a, you know, biology scientist or whatever, but you know, there's so many other ways where your brains and the way you think and, and, uh, and the, the, all you read can be useful outside. I really love it. Yeah, I I completely agree. The exercise of making my resume was a real lesson in that. So, um, turned out that my experience in running a lab made me into a manager, which I hadn't ever thought of before. Um, anybody who does research probably has really good critical thinking skills and good planning abilities. Um, and I think also working a lab teaches you a lot about. Um, spending time regularly with other people that at the beginning you don't know and maybe have little in common with, but over time you develop those relationships and learn how to work with diverse other people. So it's, um, it is a, a kind of mental shift to think about your, your academic work in terms of what you can, you, what that's going to help you do if you leave mm -hmm. academia. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and then so okay. Now you're in Stanford. This project was it uh, was it uh, kind of uh, limited in terms of time? Did you have like an, an objective and uh, that you that you fulfilled and then went on to another project? How did how what was the next chapter? Let's say yeah, it was actually a really big rolling project. We were thinking okay. about other branches we could develop, other communities we could reach out to. But then the professor I was working with took a position at Brown University, and. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, aye, aye, aye. yeah, exactly. So, you know, I was, I could have gone with her if I wanted to, but I had just left the East Coast and was really appreciating not having winter. So, um, <laughs> so again, I applied to some academic positions and I started looking for non-academic jobs. Um, and it, it was a long job search. My husband kept trying to reassure me by saying, you know, on average, it takes people five months to find a new position. And it mm -hmm. really took five months for me to find okay. a new position. Okay. It was excruciating. Um, and it was getting down to the wire when a friend, my, actually my friend from Yale, who had also moved to San Francisco, said that she'd been contacted about a position for a director of research in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And was I interested because she wasn't planning to apply for it. So she connected me with the recruiter who I talked to, and then I talked to the hiring manager for the position. And it was like, it shouldn't have been called director of research. It should have been called Sherry Whedon, this job is for you. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, that's the dream, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it took together like my knowledge of how children understand emotion, my new expertise in um, social emotional learning and interventions. And it put them all together into a nice little package. And um, it was just like the perfect fit for me. And thankfully, I was also a really good fit for them. So that's where I work now at Committee for Children as the Director of Research. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're reaching the mid midpoint of the interview and we're going to take a small break. But this is where the podcast... Uh, so I got in touch with you through learning about this podcast. Yes. Can you talk just a minute about, about what that is? Yeah, so um, as part of my work at Committee for Children, I work with the Innovation Department, which is um, outside of our regular programs, and it's just trying out new and innovative ways to help people learn and help children learn social-emotional skills. And this podcast is an amazing creative effort that teaches social-emotional skills through a fanciful storytelling format. It's the most fun work I've ever done. And it's also something I'm really proud of because we're able to be really um, responsive to what's going on. Mm -hmm. So when mm -hmm. the um, social justice and race demonstrations were going on in the U.S. this summer, we were able to like suddenly add a whole different topic to our, um, to our schedule, turn mm -hmm. it out within a week, and then also do a follow-up interview with, with an expert in um, social justice. So mm -hmm. it's just, it's I'm just so proud to be a part of this work. Yeah, and uh, and from what I've heard, there's uh, there's a lot of feedback from uh, very small fans that you have, <laughs> and they engage and they they get the, the like uh, emotionally uh, I don't know attached to different characters. It's it's, mm -hmm. it's really really interesting. We, we're going to take a break, but we'll definitely keep talking about that a little bit and uh, and talk about what having a PhD and being a PhD means to you today in 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 what you do in your current position. And before we get back to my conversation with Sherry Whedon, I just wanted to share with you a great resource I use on LinkedIn. It's called The Grad Grid, and it's a group dedicated to discussing careers and professional life after the PhD. 
If you are new to LinkedIn and don't know where to start, or if you'd like to mentor and help people, this is a great place to be. You'll find PhDs from multiple domains, every one of them more eager than the next to help, to share, and to connect. So again, the grad grid, you'll see it's really easy to find. Now, before we go back to my conversation with Sherry, I just wanted to remind you that until the end of April, if you go to podchaser.com forward slash PhD and leave a comment, Podchaser will donate 25 cents to Meals on Wheels. Plus 25 cents if I answer you. So leave a comment and I'll give you a shout out. Welcome to part two of my interview with Sherry Whedon. At the end of part one, uh, you, the listener, discovered that Sherry, uh, as part of her current position as director of research, has this project she likes a lot, and it's a podcast. And uh, Sherry, can you share what what it's called and if you uh, actually take part in the podcast? Yes. So it's called Imagine Neighborhood. Um, And I do. I, I have occasional guest appearances as an expert in developmental psychology. I am Dr. Sherry. And there's something about you calling from uh, the space station. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> our, our developer and main character of the whole show is uh, Scotty Iseri. And so to try to accommodate the vagaries of people trying to record from home, since we've all been working from home mm. for this whole time, um, puts his special guest experts on in, in interesting locations and mine is a spaceship so mm-hmm. i have a lab in space and i can fly around and do interesting studies um and it's actually kind of fun it's a fun way to segue in and out of my epi- <laughs> my little mini episodes um that i think kids also find engaging so. mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's it. Uh, I, I was talking to Scott uh, before, you know, be- when this first conversation of, of maybe having this interview uh, arose, talking with him, and apparently, yeah, the kids, some some children send uh, the drawings of how they imagine you and the mm-hmm. different characters. I think that's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Sherry, one, one thing I, I wanted to, to touch upon, and again, because I'm, I'm always thinking of the listener who's trying to understand uh, what can I take out of Sherry's experience that I that I can use you know in my journey and uh, one of the things that I always wonder is how does those how do those interviews go when you you know when well in this case for director of research I imagine maybe they were looking for a PhD but can you confirm was that the case yeah so PhD was a requirement for this position because often in positions uh, in positions outside academia, PhDs are going to find, you know, are going to get into a position where it's not a requirement. Yeah. In your case, it was. Yeah. But my, my the next question is, what what are the the, the skills uh, that that you bring from your your PhD and your postdocs that you use today and that are you know that are useful to your organization and to the mission that it has? So yeah, so the I mean. Obviously, there's my expertise, which I developed over a very long period of time. Yeah, very um, specific. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And since Committee for Children developed Second Step, which is a universal classroom social-emotional learning intervention, um, mm-hmm. both my like my knowledge of children's understanding of emotion, um, my work with another SEL classroom intervention, and the work I did with the parenting intervention 
are all really useful skills to have. I understand how interventions should work. Um, and it was perfectly applicable to this position. Um, the work that I used to do managing a lab was vital to this role. Um, I have a team of research scientists, and they're each paired with a product at Community for Children, and I help direct and oversee the research that they're doing. I give them feedback. I give them direction, which actually feels very much like working with grad students. So mm. <laughs> um, I always one of the things I was looking forward to in being a professor was working with graduate students and um, taking these really smart, motivated people and helping them, you know, find a direction that they were interested in and move them through so that they could get their PhD and become professors. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until after I had my PhD that I realized that, that, um, that there were just so many PhDs on the market right now that it's so hard to get a position as a professor. Mm. Um, so when I, talk to people who are going into grad school or partway through their program and they're, they, they're like, should I apply for a master's or a PhD? What do I need? I, I recommend that they go and look at positions that they're interested in. So if you really want to be a professor, PhD is a definite requirement. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of the positions I applied to before I got this one, um, a PhD wasn't required. It was a nice to have, um, but you could get those kinds of positions with a master's degree. So. Okay. I think that's something to give serious thought to. Um, how much education do you need to do the kind of job you want to do? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so in your case, it was a requirement for this position that you have today. Uh, I think the, the connections and the bridges that you've mentioned from your past experience to today are pretty clear mm -hmm, <laughs> and, yeah. and direct. Uh, a curiosity just like that, do you in any context have collaborations with universities and with the, with the research departments at universities in your current position? So we do have external partners who are doing research on our program, our second step program. Um, so they either, in the past, we aren't doing this currently, um, we have actually done funding calls where um, university professors apply to get the funding so they can do research on one of our um, programs. But there are okay. also other people who just spontaneously decide to do the research and already have funding. So we also mm -hmm. work with them to help them um, decide, like help them work out the research question and how to measure what they're measuring. Um, sometimes we're able to get them to measure something extra that we're interested in. Um, we also have international partners, which are almost always um, with universities. Okay. So they're, you know, academics who are trying to help their community um, increase children's social emotional learning. So we work closely with a group in Brazil that are doing okay. this work. Um, and so that's been really interesting and um, exciting to see how hard they're working. So we've covered how you got to, to, uh, to what you're doing today. Um, but we went to kind of fast over your, the, the PhD portion of, of this, of the story. And, um, well, you did mention one thing that didn't happen to me, but I've heard it. It happens, you know, with a certain frequency, which is the professor up and leaves because he gets a position somewhere else. And you, how was it that decision of, I'm going to go with my professor? How, it was that easy because you were going to now leave, you know, leave the place where you, you had your, I guess, your social network, your, your friends. Uh, I don't know how, how close family was. How was, 
that was that experience and then it, it then happened later on but then you said okay <laughs> I, now i'm not following yeah. <laughs> this time um, so with my graduate professor uh, my graduate mentor he um he'd given me like kind of a heads up that he was thinking of this so it wasn't a complete surprise when okay, it came around okay. um and he did offer me the option of staying at at university of british columbia he would you know help me um find a, a match with another professor in our department Mm-hmm. Um, but I also knew it's, it's a fact of academia and especially of grad school that you're going to move and actually all your friends are going to move somewhere else. So I, I really loved the work that we were doing and we worked really well together. So I decided to take the plunge and move to Boston um, mm-hmm. to continue working with him at Boston College. So the so because you kind of had a, a warning, you knew in advance a little bit. You were maybe already emotionally ready to for that to happen. Uh, so it, it, there was no special difficulty or hurdle in in making the move. And also, clearly, you were passionate about the subject itself. How was it getting? You know, I'm just curious. You know, getting to Boston was it really uh, like seamless and everything was ready for you? Or did you kind of still go back and forth a little bit? I'm just curious of how what the logistics was of shifting your PhD to another city. Right. So um, Boston College actually has a really good infrastructure for bringing in like international scholars. So okay. um, I worked closely with them and they helped me get the visa I needed and told me what I need to do when I cross the border and all that stuff. So that, you know, aside from packing everything I owned and giving a lot of it away and Um, actually I left my stuff or I took my stuff to, um, the university so that Jim Russell could put it in his moving truck. So I took like the bare essentials that I would need, um, and my cat and, uh, (laughs) we moved across the continent to a different country and actually looking back on it, it really was pretty seamless. Um, I didn't like, there was no like moment of like regret that I had made this decision. Um, Boston. I actually really liked Boston and um, settled in there quickly. The other graduate students, there were three other graduate students who started at Boston College the same year I did, though they were coming in as like first year's master's students. Um, So I kind of had a community, plus there was a larger group of grad students that I got to know. It was actually a really supportive and nice um, grad program to be a part of. Mm. And um, because a lot of, like I I came from Portugal to Montreal to do my PhD here. Uh, you you went to Boston. Uh, what what were your because you already you're telling me that your colleagues were you know you, you had they uh, there was a bunch of well uh, a, a handful of people who started at the same time as you. It's you, it's easy to kind of have a connection with the same cohort for sure. Mm-hmm. But what were did, did you have other like go to strategies to you know, uh, adapt and uh, and, uh, be- and become a Bostonian in a way, and and uh, and adapt to your new life out, you know, outside of uh, of the, your country of origin. I, and again, thinking that like me, like you, there's people out there who might be listening, who might be living through this thing of moving and of you know being in a new environment, maybe new culture. Uh, you know, depending on where you come from, you can have culture shock that you mm-hmm. you can deal with did, did you you know some people for some people it's sports for some people it's you know some some expression of art they that they do on the side what were your go-to 
uh, strategies to to kind of balance your life, uh, the work with the the, the social, uh, let's say, when you move to Boston? Yeah, so I did give a lot of thought to what I would do outside of being at the university before I left Vancouver. And I was already, um, I was taking swing dance lessons and okay. going to social swing dances, which is so much fun if you have the opportunity. Um, I have friends that do, and it's, it's, it, looks, it, it sounds and looks like fun. And, uh, it really yeah. is. And I was playing volleyball. So okay. um, when I got to Boston, I went online and I found out where some local dances were, and I figured out where some where I could take some lessons. And um, as it happens, I met my husband. He wasn't my husband yet um, mm -hmm. at, a, at a social swim dance. So, okay. yeah. So um, that wasn't my intention, but it worked out very well. And then um, my professor that I was, that I had moved with connected me with a, like a faculty member's husband who had a volleyball team. So I joined his oh, wow. team. And so those two things I think really helped me give, feel like I lived in Boston and had a life in Boston. Whereas I think if I hadn't done those things, I would have like sat in my apartment, except for when I was at the university. And I think that that can be a really lonely and isolating way to live. Mm. Uh, no. And it's, it's funny. You, you really went to two uh, very, very good uh, ways to, to get kind of a, a family outside of your family, which is this the group of people with them with whom you share this taste for dancing, let's say, uh, and the other one a, a sports sports team for sure. And uh, uh, no, uh, I, and I think it's it's really important. It's really interesting that you that you uh, uh, mention how you kind of found them because it, it might be easy. Maybe there's the billboard and then you, you find this information easily, but if you don't ask around you and, and be, because often when you get to a new city, people have their routines and they won't automatically invite you or, t or, you know, or tell you where things are. So, you know, go and ask your PI or ask a, a peer, a colleague, a, a benchmate, what they do, when they do it, or, and then, you know, opportunities like this uh, arise and then it, you'll, you'll see how great it is to have this group of, of uh, like-minded people with whom you, you'll, you'll share a lot of time together doing the activities. But then, you know, you, there'll be kind of an emotional safety network and social safety network for mm -hmm. sure. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it did work out really well. And I do think it's worth it if you know you're moving to think about what you're going to do when you get there. Um, in advance yeah yeah yeah, and it's actually so much easier now with the internet i think that like 30 years ago it would have been a much harder transition <laughs> yeah because <laughs> mm -hmm. so. it's true that now you will find a lot of this information online and, mm -hmm. and often even universities or programs will will provide you with some of this information what other type of advice do you think you could and maybe imagine your young self at the time or the people that you're crossing paths with today and knowing that what you know today that, you know, a percentage of people stays in academia, but a, a large percentage doesn't, some advice that you might share with them as to how to start looking, how to prepare, and um, yeah, and how to, to make it a, a smooth transition and not be a, a very clean, like, shock at the end of when, you know, when you defend. Do you have a, do you have a couple of pieces of advice for them? Yeah, something I wish I had done in grad school was to take advantage of opportunities to work with other professors more or try out things that were related to my field of like children and emotional understanding 
in an applied context. So Mm -hmm. my plan, as I've said, was to become a professor and continue the basic research I was doing. But I think it's really smart to open up some doors so that you have other options if that first plan doesn't work out. So I think I could have made the transition to doing applied research in educational settings around social emotional learning a lot earlier if I had considered that I needed a different plan or I need at least a backup plan. Mm-hmm. So At least one, right? Yeah. At least one. If maybe four or five would be good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think, I think we get really focused in grad school on the one thing that we're doing and how we're going to keep doing that. And really, grad school is the great time to like look at other opportunities, get other experiences, and see what it is. See if there are other things that you could also really, really love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's great, great advice. And uh, too much tunnel vision can really hurt you in the end if things don't pan out as you had envisioned them from day one. And there's so many. It's funny because you said something at, right at the beginning, which is now we look back and everything kind of makes sense. But at the time, it could have gone either way. That you know, you throw the dice and you don't know what combination is going to come out. Uh, so, Sherry, we're getting to the end of the interview, and um, I'd like you to share with the audience where they can find you where they can find the committee for children and uh, also the imagine neighborhood because uh, i'm pretty sure that some of the, the listeners have kids who might like to to listen to these stories yeah so let's start with the imagine neighborhood since uh, mm. that was what you mentioned most recently and um you can find the podcast on practically any of the platforms you might use like spotify or itunes uh, mm. we also have a web page it's called imagineneighborhood.org which has um, all the episodes and uh, show notes and other information. Um, Seems like this works really well for kids from like four to five years of age on the young end up to nine or 10 on the high end. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, something Scotty does that's brilliant is he makes a lot of references and jokes that the adults are going to enjoy too. Okay. (laughs) Because, you know, I've listened to some stuff like children's media and as an adult, you just want to pull your hair out. It's, it's not fun for adults. And this really is fun for both the kids and the adults. And I think it's a great opportunity for parents to do something with their children. Um, listen to it together. That's kind of the intent of the program mm-hmm. is to have parents and children listen to the same thing so that the parents can reinforce some of the learning. Um, we weave catchphrases in to remind kids um, when you, you're looking for a particular behavior, you want them to remember something. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it can be really fun for parents and kids together. Very um, cool. I, I now wish it existed in French, though. Yeah, <laughs> my, yeah. kids are, my kids speak French, so, but anyway. Yeah, we're starting to think of um, how we can translate it. And being in the U.S., we'll probably do Spanish first. Spanish, of course. Um, But that will help us figure out how it can be done. And then as we start reaching into other markets and other communities, we can figure out how to do that in French, for example. Um, French-Canadian, specifically. Yeah, (laughs) keep me posted. If you want to reach me, I am on um, LinkedIn at, yes, this is very clever, Sherry Whedon, all one word. Um, So Mm S-H-E-R-R-I W-I-D-E-N. Um, I have a Twitter handle, but I have to admit, I don't post a lot, but I do get a lot of notifications. So um, that's at Sherry underscore Whedon. And um, 
I'm also listed on the Committee for Children website. So if you're interested in looking at the Committee for Children more, you can go to cfchildren.org um, and check us out. One thing I didn't ask, and because someone listening might be interested, and I'm totally going on uh, out on the limb here, is do you have internships? Uh, you know, might someone who's listening be interested in working in your domain and have an internship at uh, Committee for Children? Is this Currently, something that we don't have do? any open, but we have had interns come in in the past, and we actually have many different areas that could be of interest to people. So, obviously, I'm on the research team, mm-hmm. um, but we have marketing, we have um, policy and advocacy, we have sales teams, we have customer support teams, plus we have the infrastructure that supports all of that. So, we have okay. um, HR and things like that. So, it's it's actually a lot of, there are a lot of potential opportunities um, mm-hmm. at Committee for Children. Great. And that, that'll be on the website, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. Um, and actually, I have to say that the people at Committee for Children are like the nicest group of people I've ever worked with. And I think partly it's that they're all really motivated by our mission, which is um, safe children thriving in a, in a peaceful world. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, it's huge, it's aspirational, but it's really important. And I'm mm-hmm. super happy to be working towards that goal. It sounds like a great project, and for sure, when people gel around a, a great project, kind of kind of attracts a certain type of people, I imagine. And, mm-hmm. and I, I totally totally understand what you say. Well, Sherry, I will put all of these links in the show notes. So, for you who's listening out there, and there's there's been a lot of like URLs and Twitter handles. Just go to the show notes; you'll find them there. Um, yeah, Sherry, this was a great conversation. I, I really, uh, really uh, had fun hearing the story and uh, and what came before, but also how what you do today is so connected to all the research you've done and all the the roles that you had in the in the research and in academia. Let's say so, and I think the the passion for you know for not for research for knowledge. Is uh, is still uh, something that you are you're feeding with what you're doing today? That's the feeling I got. Thank you. So thank you, thank you so much, and uh, it was really a pleasure to have you on the microphone. Oh, thanks very much. I really enjoyed this. And this is it for this week's episode of Papa PhD. As always, if you liked the episode, share it with a friend. It's one of the best ways to help the show reach more and more people. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests. 